Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the first Prospects podcast of 2019. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. The reason the judgment might actually come back, though, is that it seems like it's established that you need parliamentary approval not just to trigger Article 50, but to take it back. And culture. So, for example, right now I'm thinking about whether I'm uh, rambling on this podcast or not. Later on in this broadcast, we're going to be speaking to US General Stanley McChrystal about leadership in the age of Donald Trump. Someone who comes down clearly to suppress minority voters or clearly as a racist, although they'll never use that open term again, I think will become increasingly unacceptable to uh, American voters. We'll have more of that later. Uh, but first, I'm here in the studio as ever with Samir Rahim, our culture editor, and Alex Dean, who's our politics correspondent. And first, Samir, to you this time. Um, I think you've been having a think about how objectively or not it's possible to mark fiction. Yes. Um, so we all have our opinions on things. We all, you know, one of my jobs is to uh, commission reviews and to write reviews of things. Do we ever really think about the criteria on which we're judging things? And um, we've got a, an excellent article by uh, novelist Ben Markowitz in uh, our current double issue. And he's also uh, a creative writing teacher and a judge for a short story prize, the BBC Short Story Prize, which he did this year. And he's often asked... How do you judge things? How do you give an A, B, C to a piece of work? And he's got a pretty good answer, which he's come up with, um, which is um, he likes realist fiction, essentially. He likes things which are um, touch the reality of people's lives. I don't think he's a bit of a, I don't think he's a sci-fi fan or anything like that. So, so his criteria for judging fiction and what's good is um, if you can manage to create a scenario and have characters who are thinking multiple things at the same time and are somehow um, reflective more of the sort of complex realities of how we actually live. So, for example, right now I'm thinking about um, whether I'm 
uh, rambling on this podcast or not. <laughs> um, I'm also thinking uh, about uh, an event later in a- later today that I'm going to be doing. I'm also thinking about going on a holiday. I'm also perhaps thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. So the complexity of a human mind um, and how it sort of behaves, whether you can get across get that across in, in fiction is, is what he would prefer. He gives a, an example, an Alice Munro's story called Post and Beam, as he says, it's a 20-page story that has an entire created world within it. And she's she's brilliant, um, Alice Munro. Um, he also acknowledges, Ben, that you can have completely different criteria um, and that not everyone likes the sort of fine-grained realist fiction, which is, is, is his preferable option. But on the this point, I mean, it sounded to me like what he was talking about maybe wasn't a test of quality as of sophistication. He was saying he teaches creative writing and, like, you know, you expect a sort of ordinary student to be able to keep two plates in the air spinning, as it were, in terms of different trains of thought that people might have going on. But the likes of Alice Monroe might be able to have seven or eight of these things going on at once. Like, sometimes, though, in editing stuff, we, we quite like people to be simple and to keep hammering away on a single line. I suppose that's the difference between journalism and fiction, perhaps, mm. um, in that um, journalism often works by repetition and clarity. Mm. Um, it works by bringing out what is implied to become more obvious. In fact, sometimes one of our jobs as editors is to go into the idea of the meat of the piece, extract it and bring it up towards the front to make it absolutely clear what's going on. When you're, when you're reading fiction, there's a different kind of dynamic going on. So, Samir, all three of us obviously judge journalism all the time. It's kind of our, uh, literally what we do for a living. I think only you of us three has actually judged kind of a fiction prize is that is that right you haven't tom uh, no i i definitely haven't um so you must yourself have your own opinions uh about what you think makes good fiction and what did you what was your assessment of of ben's criteria and and did you disagree or well i mean my my favorite line in his piece is when he said um of course you know we can have our own uh, opinions based on the criteria that we have um and uh they're essentially uh, markers of what we would call taste, but they're also prejudices as well. And the difference between things like instinct or mm, that doesn't quite work for me, or well, does that really X or Y, and simple sort of subjectivity is um, a lot hazier than we think. We all know that when we um, give a novel for some, you know, give a novel, send a novel out to somebody and uh, you hope that they like it maybe, and they come back and they absolutely hate it, and you feel like maybe, well, that person really didn't match up you know the, that book and that person didn't match up quite quite together um in the way that they could do i mean yeah, i mean you, you you also judged recently and you spoke about on the podcast the cost of poetry prize indeed yes do you feel like there's a bit more objective criteria there in that you've got you know rhythm and rhyme and like you know um things that are to do with form that that you could be very dazzled by at a technical level whereas with a, a novel maybe it's more purely subjective no i think with poetry it's even more difficult Ah, <laughs> uh, I think it's it's um, because poems speak to you in a way that you know they communicate before they're understood. Um, there are there are those technical, there are technical things there, but I think in a way the work the poem should do the work on you, like any work of fiction really should do the, the work on you without you having to necessarily analyze it in that way. You can have wonderfully technically brilliant poems which are completely empty of meaning, and you can think have things which have a roughness around the edge. Um, which are which are brilliant. One of my old teachers used to say, "When I tap it, it rings hollow," 
And that's a wonderful phrase because it can mean almost anything. Um, it, <laughs> it doesn't. It sounds it doesn't, like a you know, meaningful phrase that then turns out to be a matter of pure opinion. Well, that's the thing. You can cite examples, but as Ben argues, you can say, well, this particular effect doesn't work here because um, of X, Y, Z. The problem is if you have a group of people sitting in a room together judging a prize, mm. and if they're all looking, if they're using different criteria... Yeah. on which uh, to judge, um, then they're going to come up with different answers. If they're broadly speaking being trained in the same sort of way of reading books, and I've been trained in a particular way given the school and the university that I went to and uh, and all the rest of it, then it's actually we can actually easily have a conversation because we're we're speaking the same language. We're looking for um, you know ambiguity in language. We're looking for technical control. We're looking for whatever else um, other criteria that you might be looking for. Other people who are coming to their poetry looking for um, uh, you know a confessional voice, or if they're looking for a, a political uh, uh, arguments or whatever kind of things that I'm not as interested in, then we're going to be talking across purposes. But uh, I thought quite fascinating is because the opposite of, so Alice Munro is the sort of, the, the exemplar, a Nobel Prize winner, exemplar of this sort of realist um, fiction. But if you take someone like Muriel Spark, um, she produces these grotesque, larger than life characters, and she writes satirical novels. Um, and they're brilliant, and I absolutely love them as well. And though her characters are um, essentially she's trying to say that the opposite of Ben because she's saying you think human beings are really really complicated and difficult people but actually when you get to the root of it mm. they're motivated by <laughs> greed and sexual desire and an urge for domination so we're actually a lot simpler than we actually think and more similar to one another Yes, or we can be categorised as types, and a lot more easy, a lot more easily. And the, this division goes through history. Really, you can trace it back to Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. Shakespeare being the sort of let's look at how people actually really behave and their complexities, and Ben Jonson, the satirist, saying you know a character who is uh, you know set epicure mammon, who's a, a lord who's got all these ridiculous desires, and you, you mock you mock these characters, and that somehow shows up a mirror to both yourself and the rest of society. <laughs> Okay, let's um, leave that there. It's not going to be um, uh, agreed on any objective criteria, I don't think. But Alex, it's two years now since that great Gina Miller court case, which forced the government to seek parliamentary approval. Is this right? For um, the triggering of Brexit. Um, now, as we look back two years on... How important was that case? Well, I think it was incredibly important um, for several direct reasons in the political sphere but also big constitutional reasons about how we want our country to work and how we want the government to work and the relationship between uh, government the executive and the legislature and um, yeah so it was late January that we got the the verdict so it was kind of churning on uh, uh, over the, the weeks before that um, there was that infamous enemies of the people headline uh, which I'm sure listeners will remember that was um, quite sinister um, and so about the judges, that's the Daily uh, Mail on the judges. Yeah, mugshots of the judges. Um, so also the case tells us something about uh, <laughs> you know the, how febrile the national atmosphere was at that point, and the, and and the character of the media, and so on. Um, the thing that I found most interesting about it was Parliament's role being asserted and and reaffirmed because the government wanted to sideline Parliament. Theresa May wanted to trigger Article Fifty. The Kind of clause that sets Brexit in motion without getting the approval of MPs first. And I think that would have been 
constitutionally, at the very least, you know, unprecedented and and arguably a little bit dodgy. <laughs> so um, Gina Miller with the uh, lawyer David Panic, who's in the House of Lords and very distinguished uh, legal figure, um, took the government to the Supreme Court and won. But now that wasn't the thing, was it? That subsequently means that we're having all these meaningful votes. Was that not stuff that was done in the House of Commons itself? Yeah, so that was done in the Commons itself. Um, so the high, the Supreme Court case uh, isn't related to all this unfolding stuff about the Grieve Amendment and so on. But I do think it's interesting about what it says about the role of Parliament in all of this and the fact it was kind of set down the marker right from the off that you can't sideline Parliament in this. The reason the judgment might actually come back, though, is that it seems like it's uh, established that you need parliamentary approval not just to trigger Article 50, but to take it back. Uh-huh. So the government couldn't unilaterally revoke Article 50. Despite all this judgment from the European Court of Justice and so on, it needs MPs to say so. That so So it wasn't just that we've had this ruling, it's interesting in a historical way, it's relevant now. And if it turns out to be um, that MPs haven't got the bottle to um, postpone or revoke Article 50 because they can't stand the political backlash, and then that ends up being the thing that drops pushes the country off the cliff yeah, in a no-edge break, it, in a exactly. no-deal Brexit, then uh, it'd be a case of Gina should have been careful what she wished for, I guess. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, although I've, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy with Gina. I think um, I spoke to her after the court case. Um, she came in for an interview and uh, she w- really was at pains to stress that she wasn't doing it as a Remainer, although I think she probably is a Remainer. I mean, she definitely is. Um, it was more a case of uh, the precedent that was being set and it would have just it would have really been a bit constitutionally iffy actually for the government to go ahead on such a momentous decision by itself. Alex talking about precedent isn't this one of the situations where the fact that we don't have a written constitution or rather we have it written down in lots of different places uh, means that people can make arguments um, uh, that drawn all sorts of different things and the fact that the referendum is almost like sort of extra constitutionary or something and yeah, it yeah. seems to work outside the constitution almost be landed like a bomb within this sort of delicate balance of you know parliament and the court and uh, and the lords and all the rest of it so the fact we don't have kind of a i mean we do have written constitutional bits but we don't have kind of a unified single text um the fact that we don't has kind of upsides and downsides um it's gives us some flexibility which is good maybe some other places don't have that but uh, also it puts us in situations where there's a lot of uncertainty and, and people can make seemingly very plausible cases from both sides but they're arguing diametrically diametrically opposed cases so what do you do um the supreme court has actually been in the news over the last couple of weeks um over a related but different case about devolution um and it just again is a really interesting constitutional question uh, and it where <laughs> extremely difficult to ascertain what the right answer actually is. And Brenda Hale, who's president of the Supreme Court, said this was one for hot towels on the foreheads. So <laughs> if she found it that complicated, you know, the average to the average person, it was basically about um, the devolution settlement. And because, of course, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted remain, but England and Wales voted leave. Um, there's all this talk that's been going on over, you know, months and years about Scottish independence. This was actually slightly different, although connected. Um, there was the UK government's withdrawal bill, now Withdrawal Act. Um, 
the Scottish government tabled a rival bit of legislation to that, it, something that was kind of fundamentally incompatible with it. it. The Scottish government said the Withdrawal Act isn't good enough. It it would take EU powers and that should be given automatically back to the devolved legislatures and would actually just give them back to Westminster and then Westminster would decide which to kind of re, which to redistribute. Um, the Scottish government didn't like that. So they, it, the way to describe it is a tale of two withdrawal acts, basically. One tabled by Westminster, one tabled uh, by the Scottish Parliament. They went at loggerheads uh, and actually the Scottish government is ruled, that withdrawal act was ruled to be, uh, you know, not, not permissible. Um, and huge amounts of it have been cut out, but it's a pretty unprecedented situation um, for the relationship between uh, the different, you know, we're four nations in the UK and uh, the relationship between all of them is not harmonious at the moment, I don't think. I mean, I suppose uh, to go to Samir's point about the, um, the lack of a written constitution, I mean, what ends up happening is you get these Supreme Court judgments and they kind of define the precedent, they define like how the wiring all um, fits together. And so like in times like these, where there's these very important test cases, it ends up being the case that it's judges, enemies of the people or not, who are, who are making the rules. One person, Alex, though, who I spoke to who'd been intimately involved in these kind of constitutional tussles in the past said to me, um, that there will be limits to how far judges can get involved in the real end game of the Brexit um, business in Parliament. And that's all because of the 1688-89 glorious revolution and uh, Bill of Rights. One of those rights being that Parliament in the end is sovereign over its own affairs. So no judge, not even in the Supreme Court, is going to be able to tell John Burko whether he needs to accept this amendment or that amendment. And it really will be. Uh, in the final analysis, back with the politicians rather than with the judges. Yeah, that's definitely right. And um, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in Parliament that uh, the courts literally can't rule on. Um, and it's, they, they would declare it non-judiciable. Judiciable. Non-judiciable. Non-judiciable. And, you know, I I think it was always going... It, Brexit is fundamentally a political process. It was always going to start that way. It was always going to end that way. Uh so that's you know not particularly surprising, um, but I think judges have shown over these two and a half years since we had the referendum that they have a very important role to play uh, in British democracy. Okay, thank you, Alex, and also Samir. And now we go over to our main interview this time, which, as I mentioned, is with General Stanley McChrystal on American leadership. Stan Crystal, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start with this issue of leadership. And I wonder whether we could talk to begin with about what we get wrong about leadership. And by we, I mean all of us, whether that's a voter, whether that's someone in office, or whether that is uh, a general. Sure. I'll start with sort of the tagline we developed after we wrote the book. It, leadership isn't what we think it is, and it never has been. And really, what I would tell you is we look at leadership through a, a foggy lens. Really, we've identified three myths about leadership that we use in how we select, elect, follow, and try to lead ourselves. And that really makes it difficult because we just fundamentally don't understand what leadership is. So then what do we think leadership is? I think if you boil it down, most people would agree 
on a definition that's something like the ability to influence others to do something. It That implies it's sort of a property you have. You have a bag of leadership in your pocket. You pull it out and you throw it at your followers and it happens. What we found through study is that leadership's an emergent property. It comes from the interaction between leaders, followers, and then contextual things that happen, factors that happen. And so really it emerges from that. So it's not something anybody possesses. And because of that, it's organic. It's very difficult to replicate when the the variables differ, and they always do. And so that brings us to why some of the things we've done from the past in leadership in terms of view it sort of as a two-dimensional checklist are wrong. You were a leader. Um, did you get this wrong? Did you think that you possessed certain qualities that made you perfect for a leadership role and, and everyone just had to understand that? Well, absolutely, because from an early age, that was the way I was taught. You were taught that there are certain traits or behaviors that a great leader has, and there are thousands of books, The Seven Habits of you know, Effective Leaders. Um, but what I would tell you is over my career through experience, you find out certain things don't work. So I went from being a very centralized, almost micromanaging leader, and this arc over time I found that I was much better off to let the reins go. Now that came from iteration of failure after failure. As we study it now and you go back, I thought, I had thought that my problem was I just wasn't a great enough great man. And in reality, what I found was I was like everybody else and great men and women actually don't exist. There are good people, but that person that's the fulcrum of history is a myth. One of the people you talk about in the book is Winston Churchill and this idea that is incredibly strong in the US as well. We see it with, you know, you know President George W. Bush was like, I've got a bust of Churchill in, in, the, uh, in the West Wing, in the Oval Office. Uh, I'm following his lead. Um, you obviously see it here in the UK as well. We've sort of mythologized this idea of him as this as this great leader. And yet, as you point out in the book, he was a leader who had some great moments. Exactly. His strengths intersected with a series of factors, particularly in the spring and early summer of 1940, that were almost perfect for that particular requirement. As you notice, a few years later, they weren't perfect and he was voted out of office. Earlier in his career, he'd had a number of failures as well. That doesn't make him a bad person. That makes him human. And yet we as followers, we as just people, want to develop the idea of these very, very great leaders, put them on a pedestal, because that's reassuring. As often as a great woman or man comes along, then our problems are solved. And that's not true. And it's also very easy for the people themselves to get bought up in their own mythology. Um, you know, you talk about the, the famous portrait of Churchill by Graham Sutherland, which really showed the reality of the man as he was then you know old proud uh not quite under basically looking like a crabby old man uh, and he hated it well that's right because if you think if you are a leader and you've been trying to to live up to this great person idea to see the mirror is sometimes a bit shocking it would be the same as if he saw his many failures in life and they were listed next to his many successes in life because it would have been a reminder. And in reality, even for the leader themselves, it's difficult to know you're not quite as great as you hope you are, as people tell you you are, and 
people expect you to be. Stan, we're recording this uh, a day before the American midterms, um, which is one of those elections that, you know, normally people outside America don't really care too much about. But given everything that's happening, they really do. Um, So I want to talk about Donald Trump. Did you vote for Donald Trump? I don't talk about who I voted for. Okay. Um, Did you have concerns about Donald Trump before he was elected? I had grave concerns about uh, President Trump before he was elected. His tone and tenor on the campaign trail, the negative uh, vibrations that he would emanate out to people, I thought would bring out the worst in in everyone. And one of the the things that has appealed to many voters about him is this idea of him as a leader, which I think goes to the heart of a number of things you bring out in the book that we're looking for the wrong things. How damaging has that been? And, and how do you see him sort of playing up to that that myth of what a, a good leader should be? Sure. I think the first thing I'd say is if we talk about good or bad leaders, that's almost a moral thing. I would sure. talk about effective or not. In one sense, I think President Trump is an incredibly effective leader in that he can resonate with a certain part of the population. He can pull at the strings. He can get them to respond in ways. And they view him as somebody who will change a status quo that they think is wrong for them. Now, on the other side, I think it's not sustainable. I think the fact that he runs counter to American values compassion, generosity, courage, uh, a certain amount of grace. And they're not uniform in the American population, but they are admired. The fact that he eschews those values, I think in the long term, will cause his support to evaporate. Because people, they elected Benito Mussolini to make the trains run on time. But Italians soured on him over, over the long haul. I fear that's what happens with President Trump. That's quite an optimistic way of looking at, it, though, isn't it? That you know, Americans over time will sour of him. They'll think he's not he's not that effective. And in the meantime, there's a lot of damage that he can do. Well, any leader can do an awful lot of damage. You look at some of the the people who've taken uh, political power in places in history and the damage they do. But I think that the the re- my reason for optimism is when I go around and I listen to Americans. I hear their frustrations. They were frustrated that the elites had failed them over a number of decades. And there's reason to have that feeling. But at the bottom, they want the country to be better. They want themselves to be better. They want their children to be better. They want to believe that America is something that is admired, not feared around the world. So over time, I think those instincts will overcome sort of short-term fear. Do you think we're living in a time of um, the strongman leader? You have obviously Donald Trump in the U.S., uh, Jair Bolsonaro has just been elected in Brazil, uh, Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping is now uh, leader for life, it seems, uh, in China, Hungary, the Philippines. I mean, we, we could go on. There's been this wave over the last five, ten years, hasn't there? Yeah, and I think there's certain reasons for it. One is, as the world gets more complex, people feel more helpless The strong leader offers a simple fix to that. Have this leader and they will lead us. Because they've seen a lot of democracy struggle as they go back and forth, they'd compromise. Um, So I think that's sort of where it goes there. I think that uh, 
the trend continues as long as the complexity keeps people scared. The other thing which I didn't expect, if you'd asked me 20 years ago about the effect of information technology, I would have told you that it was going to make societies much more transparent and effective. Actually, it's been used to do almost the opposite. That may come around. My, my initial impression may prove in the long term. But right now, it is allowing certain people to have a megaphone and go straight to populations not going through the traditional press so the traditional filters of uh that the press put on are gone and at the same time we're seeing that uh traditional supporters of uh you know the western liberal democratic order um are falling by the wayside you know most recently angela merkel saying she's going to step down as chancellor of germany how important is it that these figures, you know, th- these different types of leaders are going. And why do you think leaders like that are not succeeding uh, in the current climate? Yeah, one, once you get into an environment of hysteria or extreme positions, because they're very simple to articulate, an extreme position can get people to believe in it. It's delivering over the long haul. In the book, we outline Margaret Thatcher. She was a woman of conviction, and she really rode up into power, believing that America could be more like the uh, uh, Britain that she, I'm, I'm sorry, that Britain could be more like the Britain she had envisioned growing up and through Winston Churchill. And in the 70s, when times were tough, that simple, straightforward, confident message resonated. Now, she was not a negative leader, but she was able at that period to grab onto a frustration in the society. I think more middle-of-the-road leaders, liberal Democrats and whatnot, find it very difficult when people go to both extremes because it's just so much easier to communicate from there. How do we get out of that then? Yeah, getting out of it I think is going to be a real challenge, but I think it happens almost automatically. I think we'll, we'll bounce against the sides, we'll have very autocratic leaders will have outcomes uh, that we don't like. You know, traditionally, wars are not fought between democracies. They're fought between dictatorships. So I think as we get to more strong men, the likelihood of conflict goes up. Really? I think it, it has to, because you look at leaders in certain situations, their only foreign policy or their only tool that will unify the people and move the country in a different direction sometimes is conflict we've seen glimmers of that with president trump with a trade war now a migrant caravan that's invading the united states he he brings up the mental images of a war he hasn't yet moved to war and i'm not sure he will but he likes that the ideas that that creates inside people Over the last um, couple of years in particular, um, with President Trump's presidency and also the, the, the various debates in the US, there's been a lot of talk about, about race in the US. I, I think one of the most interesting chapters in your book was where you talked about Robert E. Lee and the way you, you started to sort of think again about your relationship to him. Um, could you just, you know, for those who aren't familiar with him, can you just give us a bit of a praise of his career and what until recently he meant to you? Sure. Robert E. Lee, of course, was a West Point graduate, an Army officer for 32 years before joining the Confederacy and leading the Army of Northern Virginia. 
for a military guy like me, he was almost the quintessentially perfect military leader, personality. And I grew up near his childhood home. I went to Washington Lee High School. I went to West Point many years after him. But I followed the path he took. And at West Point, he's an ever-present personality. There are paintings. I lived in Lee Barracks. There were other people who were respected generals, but Lee was sort of in a category of his own because he was nearly perfect. He was known as the marble man as a cadet. Then he had 32 years of a truly effective, you could say brilliant U.S. Army career. Before at age 56, he hits this point where he has to make a decision. The nation is about to split in half and the South is going to go with the Confederacy. He's made an oath to the United States. In fact, his role model, George Washington, had been large in creating the United States. But in the spring of 1861, Robert E. Lee has to make a decision. Now to slip back to me, I've had in my house until 2017 a painting that my wife gave me, a very inexpensive $25 painting that we carried around for 40 years and I hung with pride because he symbolized this leader that I wanted to be. He, he gets to the point in 1861, he makes a decision to go with the South. About, you know, 160 or so years later, I make the decision to throw out his painting. Now, what happened was there was the, the white supremacist movement in Charlottesville in the spring of 2017. My wife came to me and she says, I think you ought to get rid of the picture. And at first I said, no, I can't. You know, you gave it to me. And besides, he's a general. He's not a political guy. And just to go back, this was because there there was a statue of Robert E. Lee that these white supremacists were trying to protect, that that people within uh, Charlottesville saying needs to come down. Yeah, it was a, they found a battleground to have an argument between uh, white supremacists and, uh, and people who thought that the Lee legacy was offensive. And so... I thought about it for about a month after my wife made the uh, recommendation, and I threw it away. And it was an emotional thing for me because I still admire much about Robert E. Lee. But where I came down was in 1861 when he made the decision to go to the South, this otherwise professional, very moral person made a decision to betray his country, fight for four years to try to split it in half permanently, And he did it in defense of slavery, the biggest uh, evil that the United States has known in its history. And even though he had become almost deified after the Civil War, statues and paintings everywhere, this reality existed. And I thought about it in a new way after Charlottesville because I said, I can think about Robert E. Lee however I want. But what if I'm an African-American? And I'm going down Main Street and I see Robert E. Lee's statue there. Or maybe it's in front of the courthouse where I'm going for a trial. And I suddenly think, what's the signal? Some people say, well, it's just our legacy. There is no single signal. But if I'm an African-American, there may very well be a signal. And to me, I think we should maintain Lee's legacy, but in a balanced way. Admitting the fact that, like all of us, Lee's flawed. Do you have your views on race in America changed more broadly in the last couple of years? Um, 
my, something you think about a bit more than you might have done before. I thought about it a lot. My mother was from the South, uh, but she was very liberal. So we grew up with this. And I remember Dr. Martin Luther King when he came to Washington, D.C. I remember his murder vividly. So I thought about it. I guess I got more frustrated in the last few years when I realized that the promise of the civil rights movement of the 60s is very incomplete. And in reality, although there may not be legal hurdles, there's still voter suppression. There is still great economic inequality. And so for us to say, just because no one living today was a slave and no one living today was a slaveholder, for me to not think that I had a huge advantage being a white male in America over someone who was an African-American is just unrealistic. And what sort of journey, sorry, journey is a horrible word, but we're going to use it anyway. What sort of journey do you think your country is going on at the moment with race? And yeah. Are there positives as well as the, the clear negatives? I think the positive is that we're discussing it again. There was a period, the civil rights movement, when it was discussed all the time. And then there was a period where we said, well, that's over. And we move forward. Hopefully, it's out in front of us again. It is being talked about. It's being worried about. It's almost being adjudicated in elections. Even though uh, there will be some setbacks in this election, I think what has happened is that is temporary. It won't be defensible over the next few years because someone who comes down clearly to suppress minority voters or clearly as a racist, although they'll never use that open term again, I think will become increasingly unacceptable to uh, American voters. And just finally, to, to bring it back to leadership, um, but also America's role in the world. America has, you know, since the end of the Second World War, been seen and seen itself as the world's policeman and, you know, for good or ill, um, has played a major role around the world. Um, do you think that this sort of current on one hand, retrenchment, on the other hand, lashing out on its own. Do you think that will change? Can you see a, a time again where America you know, helps to rebuild a some form of liberal Western order? Um, yes, and, and this is the optimistic me again. You know, you, if you're in a normal family, there's one moment when one of the family members, one of the siblings complains that they do all the work and they're carrying all the burden, and they, they have sort of a little tantrum. And I think America's having a little tantrum right now. And I think we are saying we've been carrying too much load, we paid too much for defense, we suffered too many casualties, uh, and our role in the world is tiresome. Well, in reality, our role in the world is necessary, but it's also of great benefit to the United States. We've been disproportionately beneficiaries of free trade, a global uh, security system, the fact that some of our allies and other people in the, in the world have benefited as well doesn't detract from the fact that we've been the biggest beneficiary at all of all. I think as people think this through, they'll understand that our relationships, our allies, our uh, alliances are just foundational to that. And hopefully we'll, we'll get back and, and work at putting those back in good order. Although, you know, there are cases with certain trade things that need to be addressed. But the reality is, I think, that the idea that we're members of the global community uh, in good standing, I think, will come forward. Stammer Crystal, thank you very much. Thank you. 
That was Stanley McChrystal there talking to my colleague Steve Bloomfield and to read more on political leadership or the lack of it in the US and elsewhere get hold of our midwinter double issue which is in the shops now or visit prospectmagazine.co.uk where you can find all sorts of great stuff on politics, domestic and global as well as arts, culture and science. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean who are here in the studio the producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much to all of you at home for listening. And please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast, which really helps us to find other listeners and help them find us. Be sure to join us again next week for the Prospect Podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.